Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. if anyone shows up i just need someone in chat to say if you could hear me yes all right i had um the levels in youtube are not showing that it's catching audio but on my computer it is happy sunday everyone so that's why i actually started a live one and then i closed it because i thought my audio wasn't working but it is, so we're good. Mm, 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 mm. All right. So the the tricky thing about today's talk um, is I don't really know how long it is because it was something that I had to put together. It's, it wasn't really last minute, but didn't have enough time for me to run through it in my mind. And so instead of writing bullet points, I had to write out like actual sentences but then i also wrote it really big so that i could just see it at a glance so i really have i have no idea how long the talk is because of that you always want to give people enough time to like come in and settle in but then i don't want to start the service like 10 minutes after it's supposed to so i'm trying to find the uh the best mix yeah, look how gray I'm getting, right? Getting old. I'm going to be 40 next month. In like a little over a month, I'm going to be 40. The big four zero. And what am I doing? I'm going to go see Friday Night Smackdown at Madison Square Garden. I'm a bit of a Monday Night Raw guy, but I mean, wrestling is in New York on my birthday. How could I not go to it? Oh, so my favorite current wrestler is um, from Ireland. I don't know where in Ireland, but Becky Lynch. Oh, she's the best. Her and Cody Rhodes are my favorite, but Cody Rhodes is, uh, he's American. He's from Georgia or something. I like Becky Lynch's husband too, Seth Rollins. He's good. So for all, for for the Irish listeners out there, Becky Lynch is a tremendous wrestler. <laughs> they just did a, an event, like a pay-per-view level event in Saudi Arabia. And all the women, because of the location, had to dress a lot more modest than they normally do when they're wrestling. And so Becky Lynch wore that Kill Bill yellow jumpsuit that is a reference to like the Bruce Lee game of death jumpsuit so it was awesome <laughs> all right i say we get started and anyone that moseys in afterwards or leaves during we'll catch you on the flip side um so i'm speaking today because jay has been moving into his new apartment he got a new place uh so he could be closer to his kids i think it's like very very close to their school and so it's very exciting stuff, but uh, moving sucks a lot. <laughs> uh, 
And um, so we didn't want him having to figure out a talk on top of moving. So I was like, you know what? I gotcha. And so I didn't fully know uh, what I want to talk about. Normally, the way I construct my talks are I have a bunch of ideas rattling around in my head. And I just kind of wait for them to like find a connection to each other that I can um, further investigate. And originally, the first thought I had in my head, I was really excited about. But then when I was starting to piece things together, I was like, oh, way smarter people have been trying to talk about this for way longer than me. So we'll uh, kind of not do go down that path. But what I was thinking was, again, loving wrestling, especially nowadays. Um, me and my wife watch old wrestling and we were watching wrestling from 2002. And what happens is Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid, uh, is comes back to wrestling after five years of being like forced retired because he hurt his back so bad. And then he got all messed up with uh, addiction and everything. And so um, he came back in 2002. And what's, what was interesting to me is when he comes back, he is very insecure. That's not put on. That's like real. He's very insecure because he set a standard before he got injured and he didn't know if he was going to be the, the showstopper anymore. He's, if he was going to be the heartbreak kid anymore. So he, so it was a lot of like trepidation, but what struck me as interesting is that me and my wife have watched wrestling from 2005, 2006, uh, 2012, where Shawn Michaels is wrestling all that time. So we know that he is still the showstopper, that he's still one of the greatest to ever do it, that he's the heartbreak kid. And so hearing him in his present moment in 2002, not knowing if he had it in him, and then us knowing now what he didn't know, which is like, no, you're, you're the heartbreak kid. You're the showstopper. Still, you didn't, you didn't miss a step. It was very interesting to me. And I was wondering, like, is that kind of the way it works <laughs> with like God? Like, what is God's role? That was my original uh, thought process because I, I don't think that God is like a clockmaker that made the clock, like made existence as a clock and then just set it aside and it takes care of itself. So I think he's more involved than that. But then in the story of Elijah with the J, he experiences like a really bad storm, uh, lightning and wind and rain. And he says, God was not in this, that storm. And then he experiences an earthquake and he says that God was not in that earthquake. So there is some gap in between the, the way the world runs and God's presence in the world. Right. Because it's, I used to be very mystic about it and think that like God was in every gust of wind and every blade of grass. And uh, it might not be the case because some storms, some earthquakes happen without God. And so it, it you could see where it would get so confusing that my train of thought from Shawn Michaels wondering if he was going to be 
as good as he was and knowing it, like we had the future, we knew the future that he didn't know then. Um, I followed that and I was like, oh, this, I can't answer this. How, how am I going to answer what God's role in, <laughs> in our lives are? So I was like, you know what? We'll put a pin in that and see what happens. And the only other thought that I had kind of rattling around in my brain was the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. And um, I don't know why that song got stuck in my head. The only thing that I could think is I don't have my hearing's not that great. And so when I hear songs on the radio, when I'm driving or anything, sometimes I don't catch all the lyrics, but I'll know the the tune and everything. And so I want I want to say that I was listening to headphones and that song came on maybe on Spotify. And I started hearing lyrics that I didn't know were in the song. And then I kind of realized um, what I'm sure everybody else knew because they knew the lyrics of the song, <laughs> but that um, the whole song is about like um, the main character. I don't know if it's autobiographical. I'm sure it kind of is between um, Elton John and whoever wrote the lyrics. And, but it was just kind of saying like they, they kind of signed on for this like Oz yellow brick road fairy tale life. And then when they're there, they don't like it anymore. And all they want to do is go back to their farm and back to their plow. And it was the, him, the line saying uh, of Elton John saying, I'm going back to my plow that just kept going around in my head because, um, like I was on a podcast once and uh, we were talking about Daredevil and we were discussing some of the biblical stuff um, in the comics. And uh, one of the other people on the podcast asked if I, um, if I felt it was heavy handed, like a lot of the imagery, if it was heavy handed and I was honest and said, I, I really couldn't tell because being so like, obsessed with the Bible, basically. Um, I'm, I'm always finding and looking for biblical Im imagery, even not like consciously, it just happens. And so everything comes across heavy handed to me because I catch all these references. Um, so I say that so I could explain how I could hear a line saying, I'm going back to my plow and without forcing it or anything, I'm just thinking of the prophet Elisha uh, with an S, uh, cause we'll get into that. There's, uh, very similar names and, um, and where, and our introduction to him and he's like plowing a field. So that's where my mind went to. And I just started kind of having that roll around in my head. Um, and then as I kind of started jotting notes, then it, it snowballed in a good way. And it was, a uh, well, it was very exciting to me. We'll see how it, translates. So uh, the reason why that line, I'm going back to my plow, reminds me of Elisha with, um, with an S, because there's two prophets. The first prophet to come along out of these two was Elijah with a J. And he bursts onto the scene like something, it's not even out of a movie. It's something out of we sat down and we put on a random episode 10 seasons into a 
series and we don't know what came before it. Like he just shows up out of nowhere in this existing story and he just comes in like um like the hammers of hell. He comes in and he's prophesying, he's you know, shutting off the heaven. Uh, you know, there's no rain. Uh, that's his doing and he causes this famine and he's like killing prophet like um false prophets uh and like pagans and you're just like where did this come from <laughs> and um and then uh, so at the end of his life he finds a, a like um a successor predecessor or one of those someone uh, like that he's going to train and he's going to come up better um than him and that prophet is Elisha, Elisha with an S. And his uh, entrance into the Bible is a lot less cinematic. <laughs> he's um, just plowing his field and he's with his ox. And um, Elijah comes up to him, puts his cloak coat on him, which I guess must have symbolized um, like, hey, you're my student now. <laughs> and um, and then it just kind of like hits the ground going from there. And then these two are very, very big people. Like Elijah, Elijah with a J makes an appearance in the gospels. Um, he makes a, an appearance in revelation. Um, at one point, like it's all, I don't believe in revelation being what it is. Um, so I'm not saying this in a literal sense, but in the book of revelation, um, I think it's revelation. It might be another thing, but, um, like the archangel Michael and Lucifer are fighting over the body of Moses and Elijah. So he's, he's a big hitter. And then what's crazy about that is that Elisha with an S actually has like received twice the portion of like prophecy and everything that his predator that his teacher did. And so Elisha is even like bigger than Elijah with a J. And, and what I love about the introduction to Elisha with an S <laughs> is um, that, so he's plowing his field and he's got his ox and he has the yoke on the ox and they're pulling the plow. And then when he, um, decides to follow Elijah and he's going to become a prophet. He takes the yoke and he breaks it up and he uh, turns it into firewood. And I love that because um, in the, uh, in the book of acts in chapter 15, they're having kind of like a council meeting and that's when Peter stands up and he's, he kind of is saying what Paul says in Galatians that like, you can't put this law on non-Jewish people because that, that law was a yoke that crushed us and our ancestors. None of us could bear it. And you can't put it on these, these um, like non-believers in which like also God doesn't see a difference. Uh, we'll get into that more, but I just want to set the stage for where my mind went. So just that breaking up of the yoke into firework firewood um and then thinking of how the law of moses and all that legalism it peter says is a yoke around our neck that we can't bear um i just love the imagery of elisha who is kind of uh 
a precursor to Jesus, like kind of basically metaphorically breaking up an, uh, a yoke and using it for, for firewood. And so that, that's how I start to follow, follow down the line of deconstruction, deconstructing legalism. And, um, another thing, let me just take a sip. Sorry, guys. Another thing that kind of spurred this talk on was something that my therapist said to me, um, in my last session and she paraphrased something, but the way she paraphrased it was so good that I didn't even want her to clarify with the, the real quote. I was like, nope, this works. I'll take it. Um, but the quote was religion is for religion is for those afraid to go to hell. Spirituality is for people who have already been there. And um, like at first I was like, oh, that's good. And then the more I thought of it, I was like, oh, wow, that's no, that's great. <laughs> um, because I feel like that the difference is with spirituality, for lack of a better word, is it's that next level of um, understanding that we're like, we got to a place in our lives. Anyone listening to this that wanted something other than traditional church has gotten to a place in our lives in which we don't like agree with the, the strict legalism and the literalism of the Bible. And we have started to see ourselves and other people as equal, you know, no Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free. Um, and the only way we could get there is something happened in which we sank so low in some way. It doesn't have to be addiction. It doesn't have to be anything, but something dragged us through hell, some sort of trauma. And it came out with this renewed sense of like, no, I'm not scared of going to hell. Um, I just, I don't think the way we're going about it is the right way. And so that's why I really like that quote. And, um, and so the going back to acts 15, when Peter is saying how this law is just a stranglehold on us that none of us could, could bear. Um, what happens is that the, we get so caught up in the law and the legalism of things because we want to be able to control stuff, right? We want, and it's not always for power. It might be, we're scared of the unknown. We're scared of people that aren't like us. So we, we band together with people that agree with us and we form all of a sudden these echo chambers, but that leads to separation. Um, and then when, when people get too separated, they start to feel like, no, we're the only ones doing it right. And they get self-righteous. And then all that leads to just the, these religions of laws of do's and do nots. And you're worse than I am. I'm better than you. Um, and like Peter says, it just is, it's crushing everyone. We cannot live this way. Our ancestors were never able to, and we won't be able to. And, um, so a problem also stems from any, any sort of scripture or belief structure that we follow, we have negotiated it to that point and we have cherry picked it to that point. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm saying that 
we can't have all the different denominations of Christianity that we have if people don't cherry pick. They're like, oh no, we don't believe in, we believe that women should not be able to lead the church. But I mean, you could mix fabrics, that's fine. You could eat pork, that's fine. But women can't, or, you know, uh, you could eat pork and dairy and mix this stuff, but don't lay with another man, you know? So we're always finding ways of like, no, we're comfortable with this, not comfortable with that. So that's gone. This is our law. Um, and that's kind of like where Paul in Galatians and um, Corinthians is just like, follow all of the law or none of it. Stop this picking and choosing, but it, it happens. Um, and People might listen to this talk and they'll say that I'm doing that. I'm cherry picking and they'll be saying that when I'm, I'm not doing it. And then I'll say I'm not doing it when I am doing it because it's just such a natural thing that we do. It's not always a deceptive thing. It's just the, the way things make sense to us and the pieces fit together. There is a certain amount of negotiation um, in that. And it brings me um, to a funny story that happened. I was um, at a graduation party. I didn't really know hardly anybody. It was me and my wife and we're sitting there and we kind of got sat with uh, at a table that they sort of knew my wife, um, but not really, but close enough that we could sit together as like sort of outsiders. And it was a family sitting there. And the way they were talking about their friends and family, I just knew that they were Christians. I just, I could, they weren't saying anything about God or Jesus, but it's just growing up in the church, going to a Christian college. I used to joke with my friends that like, I could smell my own kind. Like I could just tell. And um, my suspicion was confirmed when they talked about a friend that only knew their girlfriend for two months and they were getting married. And I said, I said, I'm sorry to interject by any chance. Are they, you know, um, evangelical or and like, Oh yeah, they met at a missions trip because going to college in Nyack, it was very hi, Nice to meet you. You want to get married? You know, like everybody was getting married in the first months of college and it was just insane. Um, I think it was just because they wanted to have sex, <laughs> but not feel guilty about it but that's just me projecting. So I'm at this party and they, now they find out that I'm, I'm a, a believer of sorts. I don't say that I'm a Christian because I don't like the weight that it carries, but I'm not ashamed of my beliefs. I just don't want to be lumped in with <laughs> um, troublesome thinking. And me and one of the, the women start having a conversation in which it's clear to me that we're saying two different things, but it sounds like we're agreeing. And cause she was saying how she just wishes that churches would just go back to teaching the Bible, teaching the basics, stop twisting it to say what other people want to hear. And so me, as you know, from my stance, I was able to say, I completely agree. But the thing is she was talking about people similar to revolution and how we're accused of like tickling ears and changing the Bible just so we're better, you know, uh, feel better about being sinful allies <laughs> to certain communities. Right. But what I was saying in that same agreement is that I wish that people would stop 
like weaponizing the Bible and twisting it and, and making it say what they want to say to please their congregation to keep this echo chamber alive, keep money flowing in. So it was very funny that we were saying the same, we were agreeing, but actually saying opposites like of what we were, um, the other was thinking. And, you know, there's like a twisted thing that happens in uh, church. And we've seen Jay get grief about, say, if he has to cancel service, uh, sometimes even when I cover for him or if no one covers for him and we just cancel it, he'll get grief about not putting God first when really he's focusing on his kids and every uh, and family and his mental health. And it just is kind of strange because, you know, what he's not doing is he's not putting church first. He's not putting religion first, but that's not God. Like to care for your family, to, you know, to know that he is kind of the, you know, he's the, the main, the main dude at revolution. This is his gathering, like his church. That sounded culty. Sorry. It's like his church. We don't like using that um, word, but the, um, but how can he help others if he's suffering or if he's so depressed or if he's so busy and distracted? So to help others, he has to help himself. To love others, he has to love his family. These things are connected. And so we see this really disjointed thing in which God, uh, church and religion is equal to God. Like they're the same to some people. And so if you blow off church, you're blowing off God. And it's like, that's not the case at all. And um, I had a funny story. It's funny now because time like has gone by. It was very annoying at the time. Um, but, you know, uh, I graduated college almost 20 years ago. Um, but at, as college, at, at college, as part of it, we had to go to church three times a week. We had to go to chapel. And I can't st- like I, at that point, I couldn't stand church. I couldn't stand Christians because of the behavior that I was seeing being so surrounded by them. Uh, the judgment that was getting cast my way, plus the judgment I was casting other ways. It just, I didn't like it. And I turned into the Ferris Bueller of uh, skipping chapel. You know, I had people like punch in my, my ID number. So I got credit. I give it to people so they could scan it in instead of circle back around and scan it. Uh, theirs then um it was just i'll do anything to get out of chapel but lo and behold it catches up to me and they won't let me graduate unless i do a certain amount of community service um that they approve of as the college i said oh my church has a a food pantry uh i would like to uh, i'll do my service there so i could actually be feeding people and helping people my grandma runs the food kitchen and nobody will make sure that I do, do more work than my grandma will if I'm helping out. I, this is not a situation in which it's like, all right, grandma, just sign this piece of paper and I'm set. Like, no, it's, I would probably be working harder than everybody else. Um, but the school said, no, we don't trust that uh, you would actually be doing community service. And so I was like, okay, well, my, my church has a very active um, music ministry that I could be join up with and do outreach that way or the youth group. And basically they didn't want me doing anything at my home church because they didn't trust that um, there wouldn't be loopholes. 
So they set me up with a, like a mission in a few towns over from me on Long Island, forced volunteering, right? They voluntold me to go um, help out. And so I go and they're just having me move like refrigerators on um, hand trucks and and move furniture. I'm not actually ministering to people. I'm not helping people. I'm just working in a, in a glorified warehouse. And that was acceptable. So that was already annoying. And then I'm watching the people that are running this mission. People are coming up to them with problems and they're being so dismissive of these people. They're just quoting scripture at them and then walking away. And I was just like, what is happening? This is like, this is the opposite of what should be going on. And I remember one time the woman was like, no, the righteous man stumbles, you know, seven times or whatever the scripture is. And the other guy not being a Christian um, was saying that, so I have to do this seven more times. And she was so frustrated with him. She's like, that's not what that means. And walked away. I was like, what? And then um, they were like, all right, Josh, we need your help. We need you to cut up these flyers for this um, church, like church function or whatever. And so they give me flyers and like, you know, uh, a guillotine um, cutter. And um, she goes, okay, but I need you to cut these. And I'm talking about a real spirit of excellence here. That's what she said, a real spirit of excellence. I'll never forget that. And then it, it occurred to me that they were more focused on how presentable the flyers were for their church slash mission than they were at helping people that were coming to them. And um, that just like drove me nuts that they were putting, they weren't putting people first um, because like uh, me personally, like I didn't even think I was a people person. If you ask me most times, I'll say I hate people. <laughs> I'll, I'll be just honest about that. But also at my core, I am like a hype man. I love hyping people up because it's sincere. I also hate lying and I hate wasting my time. So I, I don't just hype people up just for the sake of doing it. I truly, what I say, I mean, otherwise I would find ways to get out of saying it. And, um, and so having like having that desire to hype people up and put people first to see people putting church first and organizations first drive me uh, crazy because I chose to do the kind of like the opposite that was told in, in school and college when we're taking apologetics classes, right? Learning how to defend the faith. They don't focus on having relationships with people they focus on almost like, like sales pitchy type relationships, like, oh, almost like get them hooked so you could feed this to them. But they never talk about like just maintaining things and also not rushing it. And, you know, I talk about the Bible a lot uh, because I'm just, I love it. But with my friends, lifelong friends that I've had, you know, since uh, I was probably going on 30 years now. I don't owe, I don't talk to God about God to them hardly at all because it just 
it just doesn't fit. It doesn't mean the same to them as it does to me. But what I can do is I can show them love and grace and patience just in being a friend to them with no agenda other than friendship and other than their well-being and their well-being for the sake of their well-being, not for me to go tell people at church, oh, I had a friend that was struggling and then I said this scripture and he's doing better. So praise me, (laughs) you know? Um, And I, you know, sometimes I do doubt myself because, you know, you grow up and there's just so much emphasis on the great commission and getting followers and believers and conversions. And so even though I don't believe in that stuff, I would still find myself feeling guilty about not doing that. But another thing that uh, my therapist pointed out that I was oblivious to is the amount of like, like uh, reformed addicts, current addicts, um, recovering alcoholics, still active alcoholics that are in my friend group. Like it, so there is, it kind of like dawned on me that there is something about the way I am approaching this of putting them first, putting love first over agenda has been working and they see me as a safer place, a judgment free place. But that's not to say that I'm a, uh, a pushover because I do, I am, I'm a straight shooter. I, I, I say it how I see it. Um, but with, with this tough love that I try to practice, I always try to focus on the emphasis on being love and not the tough part of tough love. And so I always think there's a way of honesty to approach people and, um, and discuss things without letting it slide. Like if a friend's really hurting themselves, I will speak up to that friend, but I do it in that hype man sort of way of saying like, no, this is all the stuff that you have going on for you. And you're putting all of that in danger over this. And sometimes it doesn't go over well. And sometimes it goes over great. And, um, and there's like some change that happens. And I'm also the first to say, I promise that the change that happens, that's all them. It's not me. I just said like a truth to them. They still have to live that truth and put the exercise into it and um, be active with it daily. Um, Cause a lot of times we deal, especially in, in like the, the Christian faith, we deal with those people that are just, I'm just brutally honest, right? They say that I just, I say it how it is. I'm not a liar. And what they always say is like the meanest, harshest stuff that you've probably ever heard in your life. They just go like, can I be honest? And you're like, yeah, sure. And they're like, you're a horrible person. And you should, what? Okay. I didn't know we were getting like this. And um, there's a great line in that movie, uh, Glass Onion. It's a, a Knives Out movie on Netflix. And the the one character says, um, what she said, I'm a truth teller. Some people can't handle it. And then the other character goes, it's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. And that's, that's a great line. Um, so, but I, I mean, just like anybody else, I'm human just as we're all human. And I do get frustrated um, when I see myself or other friends repeatedly making the same mistakes 
not failing, but like repeatedly failing at the same thing, um, not learning, not adjusting. Um, I do get frustrated with that. But if I focus on the fact that we have a shared humanity, then we, we become uh, even, even though I might be frustrated that they're not like getting it together or whatever the phrase might be. Um, we all, like Jay said a few weeks ago, we all fall short, um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's a passage in Romans. But instead of saying like, oh, we're all dirt and scum, we're all sinful. What Jay was kind of saying is like, no, we all have sinned and fall short. So we're all on the bottom rung together, you know? And so if we keep that in mind, it does give us more patience, especially if we're practicing, um, love because as Jay's mom says, we're all the same old dirt, right? You know, when we died, we're going back to being dirt. You know, if we, if we're running and we trip and we're in midair, we're all as susceptible to gravity as everybody else. Like we're no different or special than anyone else. And that shared humanity really could help us with our patience and love, um, even tough love. And, um, you know, being being a hype man and being a nerd, I always think of uh, in terms of like monsters and Goliaths. You know, I did my last talk was David and Goliath. You know, depression, anxiety, um, work, addiction, school, family, anything. They always manifest themselves in my mind as like monsters that keep like emerging that we have to keep fighting. You know, I it's just the easiest way for me to picture, um, the struggle. And, um, there's a video game, probably my favorite video game of all time is, uh, final fantasy seven. The main character cloud strife is my favorite because he, um, he's a very, very depressed hero. He saves the, the whole, he saves the world. And then he's just like depressed over, you know, uh, he, he lost a friend and that really got, got him down. He's blaming himself for it. So just that, like that flawed, the hero, I'm just a sucker for it. Um, but the, the game has a very big following. So years later, as a thank you to fans, they made an animated movie called final fantasy seven advent children. And it's, it's, it's great. I love it. Um, I think it still kind of holds up, but it's anyways, there's a, a great scene in it. And this is like, this is, it's a meta. This is like the metaphor for hyping people up. And there's a big, huge monster attacking the city and each of the individual heroes cannot take it down no matter what they do. And so cloud joins them. Finally, he kind of gets over this depression that he had and he realizes everyone's in trouble. And so he goes, and he, he, he's fighting this monster and the monster starts to fly away. Um, and so cloud jumps after him. Um, and it's a Japanese animation. So, you know, his jump is, you know, you know, like borderline, like jumping over a building, but so he, he jumps after him, starts fighting. And as he's falling back down, another one of the heroes grabs him before he lands, tosses him up higher. Right. And so then he's fighting as he's flying through the air. And then as at the peak of that, right before he start, starts coming down, 
another one of his friends catches him and throws him even higher. And they do this chain of throwing Cloud higher and higher and higher so that he can get to the monster and defeat it. And I just love that imagery so much because that's what I feel like we need to be as a community. It's like, we can't take this on on its own. And even if it's my battle to fight, we could just keep raising each other higher and higher and higher, giving them that extra boost so that they can fight this um, monster. And uh, I know that sounds simple, right? That's just like, yeah, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> why wouldn't you raise each other up and, and strengthen each other? But it's really, um, that's where religion enters. That's where legalism enters, you know, these because like I said, you know, legalism is a reaction to fear and fear causes us to separate and separation is when we find ourselves in these echo chambers, you know, I'm guilty as anybody look at your Instagram, who you're following. And it's, it's an echo chamber. It's, it's either that, or you're following someone, something to be outraged about, but usually it's just this, um, this echo chamber. And that's when we start to other people, right? Because we're in our chamber and anyone that's not in our chamber is others. And um, that's, that's where the, the othering as Jay calls it, right? Happens. But this is nothing new. Othering people and scapegoating. It's as old as time itself, right? Because Adam and Eve in the garden, they mess up. Adam goes, it was her. It was her, and it was the one, the woman you made me did that, right? And then Cain and Abel, and Cain's, I'm not his keeper, right? And then it goes on, it goes on like that. And only 1600 years from let there be light, 1600 years, and God's uh, in, in Genesis 6, God is just like, I hate my creation, I can't stand them, they're horrible people. Um, and that's where we get Noah's flood, you know, to try to, to restart it all. And um, so it's as old as time. It's nothing new. It's nothing we came up with now. As long as there's been people, there has been other people. And um, the with religion, where that's a slippery slope, is the, the little echo chambers that we form we become the main characters in this story, right? We're the ones that God loves, we're his people, the other people aren't. And um, and so that makes us want to be like, why should I help them? Let me help help our chamber. They're, we're the people that are, are great. You know, um, let them take care of themselves. And again, this was as old as we could think of because uh, not many people excuse me, fully realized that they tried to kill Jesus more than once. And one time he was in his uh, hometown and he was giving us um, a reading at the temple, at the synagogue. And everybody was like, wow, this, I can't believe this is Joseph's kid. This is crazy. This is, this is so wonderful. And then Jesus says that um, at the time of Elijah, there was the famine and there were a lot of widows in Israel at the time. But Elijah went to the widow Zarephath in this foreign place. 
and then in the time of Elisha, there was lepers and people with skin diseases all over Israel, but he helped a man in Syria. And that infuriated the crowd because the idea that God helped others before helping Israel, like almost like ignoring Israel to help others, got them so enraged that they tried to throw Jesus over a cliff. I'm not sure what happened. It's a Jesus just walked through them. Um, so, um, so that was very, very interesting to me. And so I was, um, researching some, some of that. And, um, I started to see a phrase in some of the scriptures, phrases that were talking about far off countries and God's people, and just a lot of different versions of us and them. And that really, I start to tug on that string and wonder, like, if you look at it from a certain light, it just seems so silly that we're so literal with the Bible. Um, because every country that reads the Bible, when it talks about like our people and our country, like they're, they make it about their country, right? People in Korea, when the Bible says our country, you know, like, and the Lord said to our country, like they think of Korea, they're not going, well, it says our country, but they, that really means America. You know, like everybody is looking at these phrases as their own. Um, and that's who God's talking to them as the people. And there is something very innocent and beautiful about the idea of trying to relate to the scripture in such a way and um, make it so personal. But where where it gets dangerous and I could only really use an example of America is America was founded by people fleeing England um, and fleeing religious persecution. Right? So when they lived in England and the church of England was doing their thing, all the scripture that was talking about like our country and far off countries and us and them, they were like, no, God's meaning England. Right. And then, these people flee, come to America, and now they're reading the same scriptures, and all of a sudden, our country and us and God's people is now America, when just like, you know, months before, they were reading it, and it meant England. And so that's where it gets very dicey to be so literal with it, because it wasn't ever about us. It wasn't ever about America or England or Canada or Australia or Korea. Um and so what, what happened is um, I was thinking of how many times we hear pastors say, no, the Bible says it clear as day. Look at these words. It's right here. And we take that at face value. And then I was like, wait, let me just see. What is the history of the Bible in English? And so let's see if we could breeze through this because I don't want to keep anybody super late but this is like my favorite part. I'm so excited about this because I'm a nerd. So I had to write some of it down because it's, it's new research to me. So the first ever English Bible was in written in the 1380s, not here. It was just the first ever English Bible and it was written by, um, and it was translated from Latin by John Wyclef and it was handwritten. So it was the first English Bible was handwritten 
by John Wyclef in the 1380s. In 1415, one of his followers was saying, no, the Bible should be available to anybody to read in their language, not just Latin. Like It should be translated to their own language. Um, that man was burned at the stake, and John Wyclef's handwritten Bibles were used as kindling. <laughs> and so we'll get back to that. Um, in 1450, Johann Gutenberg invents the movable type printing press. First thing that's ever printed on that is a Bible, but that Bible was written in Latin. So then we jump ahead 40 years in the 1490s, Thomas Linacre decided that he was going to learn Greek and he wanted to translate the Gospels um, from Greek and compare them to the Latin that they were the only way they knew the gospels was in Latin. So he learned Greek translated from the original Greek and then compared it to the Latin translation that they've been using their whole lives. And in his diary, Thomas Linacre says either the original Greek is not the gospel or we are not Christians. Um, and it's because the Latin had become so corrupt um, that it no longer even preserved the message of the gospel and then um, the church threatened to kill anyone that read the scripture in any language that was not Latin. Um, so six years later in 1496, um, John Colette started to read the New Testament in Greek and translate it to English. And he did this to for his students at Oxford. And then it eventually he got asked to do it at a, a in a cathedral and in people were so hungry to hear the gospel in their language that in six months, there was like 20,000 people that went to that church um, over the course of that. And now, now we're getting to the real heavy hitters here in 1516 Erasmus was so moved with the con um, was so moved by all the, the previous people um, in a, he was so moved to correct the corrupt Latin that he made a Greek to Latin parallel Bible, um, but the Latin was his new translation rather than going off of the existing Latin that they had. And when they printed that, that was the first non-Latin printed Bible in a millennium. So what is that, a, a thousand years? And it was the first time a Bible was printed in any way that was not in Latin. So then we get to 1520, and there's a, a weird parallel lines going. We have one pesky, good-for-nothing rebel rouser named Martin Luther. And he was so fed up with the church and their corruption that he nailed his letter to the door, thus beginning the uh, Protestant Reformation. He's sent to exile, and he starts taking Erasmus's um, Bible and translating it to German in exile. At the same time, um, William Tyndale or Tyndale, sorry, I don't know like these uh, pronunciations, uh, who he said to be the architect of the English language. And he was said to be so fluent in eight different languages that it seemed as if they were all his native language. And um, so he wanted to translate the New Testament into English, and he wanted to use Erasmus's Bible, 
So he somehow ends up on Martin Luther's front door. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, are you using that? And um, he makes the first English New Testament. So um, this is all interesting to me. Sorry if it's a boring history lesson to everybody else, but it's going somewhere. I promise. Um, so 15 years later, um, Miles Coverdale, I believe, um, carried on um, the previous work from William Tinsdale and uh, made the first English full Bible, like not just the New Testament. Um, two years after that, a man named John Ro uh, Rogers made a full English Bible, but this one was translated from the, so it's the second ever English Bible, but this one, instead of being built off of a Ramesses work, went back to the original Hebrew and Greek and made their own Bible from that. Um, these translations were not welcomed by the church <laughs> at the time. Um, and so they were uh, confiscated, they were destroyed, they were burned, um, because the fear was that if the Bible was available to the common man in their own language, it would be disastrous for the church and their power and you know, they had power in controlling the scripture. Um, so, um, so they eventually got to a point though, where in, the English Bibles were distributed to every church, but they were chained to the pulpit. Uh, and so they were big. They weren't like the Bibles that we have. They like this, they were like big, you know, you've probably seen them in old churches, like they're big and they were chained there. So no one could take them. Um, but even that has like a quick little tangent fun story. And that is that King Henry VIII, um, I'm assuming like the song by Herman Hermans, um, he wanted to divorce his wife and marry his mistress. And the Pope said no. And so King Henry said, well, I'm going to do it anyways. We're also not part of the church anymore. I'm going to start my own church. And then out of spite, um, he had these, those English Bibles printed and sent to all those churches but it was just despite the Pope at the time. Um, then uh, King Henry VIII dies. King Edward, the what have you, comes in and he's king. He dies. Queen Mary I takes the throne and she wants to get the church back united with the Roman church. And so those the two men that made the English Bible... She has them burned at the stake and she just goes on a killing spree, killing any Protestant reformer that she could find. And so this makes the church in Geneva, Switzerland, the only safe haven for people. And um, there we have the meeting of these three men, John Fox, John Knox, and John Calvin. And they wanted to produce a Bible that would continue to educate their families, even though they lived in exile, they wanted um, their families to be able to be educated. So they made what was known as the Geneva Bible, and that was in 1560. And um, this was the first Bible to have numbered verses along with the chapters. And um, ascent, and they had a extensive notes in the margin and the footnotes. So it actually was the first uh, English study Bible like that was ever made. And um, so that was like kind of like the gold standard for a while. In 
1558, Queen Mary dies and King James hmm, comes to power. And so at that time, they want smaller, more individual Bibles and they want all the notes taken out of the footnotes and only leave vital ones. They don't want ones that have the history saying like the Pope is bad or the Pope is antichrist or whatever. So um, they get all the versions of the Bible that I've mentioned before that everyone made. They got a council of like 50 scholars and they made the King James version of the Bible, King James translation in 1611. And then around that time, people start fleeing to America to escape religious prosecution. Then in 1782, so King James version was in 1611. In 1782, the first English Bible was printed in America by Robert Aiken. And so that's how, that's all of that. All the translations and no, you can't translate this, burn that, burn that, is how the Bible gets to America, right? And then 241 years later, with hundreds of translations, we're here in the year 2023, and churches are saying, the Bible clearly says this. Um, and it's like, uh, that doesn't make sense. There's too many links in that chain, right? And they're, uh, it's like a game of telephone, you know, how many links before the phrase skibbity bebop gets changed to Sally's kneeling on a pop rock, you know? And so I'm not saying that there are flaws in the Bible. I'm just saying that there's too many links in the chain to say clearly, hey, this is exactly what this means. And um, because there were some mistakes, uh, there was one translation of the Bible that in the uh, book of Ruth, they mixed up pronoun. Uh, they made a he a she or a she a he. And then um, there was a thing dubbed the wicked Bible because they left the word not out in the Ten Commandments and they had Bibles out there that said, thou shalt commit adultery. And, um, and so the, the weird irony is that in 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake for saying the Bible should be available in our own languages. Um, but Latin wasn't the original language of the Bible, you know, so I even went back further. So in the third century BC, that's when uh, the Bible was translated from Hebrew to Greek. And then in 382 AD, St. Jerome was like, hey, we don't speak Greek, we speak Latin. And it would be so beneficial to have the scriptures available in a language that we can understand. And so he translated it from Greek to Latin. And then in the thousand years between that happened and they burned that man at the stake, all of that history was forgotten. And all of those people just assumed that the Bible was written in Latin and Latin was the only way you're allowed to read it. You know, I don't think it was a conspiracy that was handed down over a thousand years, like the Da Vinci Code or something like that. It's just a thousand years went by and that's all they knew was this Latin translation. And there was power and political stuff happening too. But um, it's just crazy that they once were at a point where they're like, we can't understand this unless it's at, in our language, get to a point where it's, this language that it was translated into is the only acceptable way and we're going to kill anybody else that does that. And we could kind of see similar themes happening today.
with the Bible and with Christianity, you know, things that were taught get bastardized so much over a course of a thousand years that now all of a sudden, if you're gay, you're going to hell and burning forever or what have you, that people are just, those people make me uncomfortable. So this scripture will let me weaponize it against them. And um, so like my deconstruction has never been about proving that there is no God because I don't believe that my deconstruction is always that church and religion are one thing and God, Jesus, the Bible, they're another thing. They're not equal. Um, that's what I just want to always draw that distinction with my deconstruction. I'm not, I'm trying to actually rebuild more than deconstruct with that because you know, the, the scriptures talk about how gold is refined, right? They, they melt it and then any impurity gets burned away and all you're left with is pure gold. And that's what I want to do with my deconstruction. I want to take all of this stuff, put it in a pot, boil it and burn it and melt it. And then anything that is not God and not Jesus and not the Bible will be burned and melt away. And what we have left is as pure as we could get it. That's the goal in my deconstruction. Um, because we have to remember too, that the Christianity that everybody is fighting for now has gotten to this point. It changed to this point. You, if you look at it like sports, for me, I'm a big baseball fan and they're changing baseball. There's universal designated hitter. There's bigger bases. There's um, a pitch clock. And I'm going, they're ruining baseball. What baseball that I used to watch was so much better than this. But the baseball I used to watch had my my dad and his brothers and that generation saying, man, baseball used to be so good. And then they changed the rules to that. And baseball is not the same anymore. But then when they grew up, they liked baseball. And their parents and grandparents hated the way it changed to what they want. Similar thing with um, wrestling, because I have to work it in somehow, um, was that me and my wife love wrestling from like 2000, like in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, were the best, they were the best. So when we're watching new wrestling, we're like, it's good, but it's not as good as what we watched. That was the best. But I also know people that got out of wrestling in the early 2000s because like, oh, it's changed so much. I hate the way it's changed. It used to be so much better. So you know, religion in its nature is like that. You know, it's what people are fighting for now is not the religion that it was always been. And we just need, we just need everyone to see that. And, um, you know, so we're in this weird tricky place in which if you teach um, inclusion, if you teach out like being an ally and grace and, and love, a lot of people are saying that you know, it's called like progressive, right? Which is really strange to me because progression in Christianity when dealing with the Bible is actually trying to go backwards. We want to go back, like back, back to Peter and Paul and Jesus just being like, no, everyone's equal. The, the hills are made low. The valleys are filled up. We're equal. There's no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free. Um, and so it's like, we want to go backwards, but it's called progression, which is really strange um, to me. So in wrapping this up, 
because I'm going long. I'm sorry. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes, So then, rid yourself of all evil, all lying, hypocrisy, jealousy, and evil speech. As newborn babies want milk, you should want the pure and simple teaching. Now, what is more pure and simple than the imagery of Elijah with his plow breaking up a yoke, um, the same yoke that Paul says was crushing us and our ancestors, that the legalism of the law was crushing us and we couldn't handle it, our ancestors couldn't handle it. So all that's left is just like love and grace and the hills are low, the valleys are high, we're all equal. That's as, as pure and simple as the message gets. Anything added to that just confuses it and makes it more complex. And um, another interesting thing about that Elijah imagery is that um, he he's plowing the field with ox, right? Oxen, ox, oxen. And when Elijah Elijah comes and anoints him, he breaks up the yoke that bound those oxen and he makes a fire out of them. Then he cooks those oxen and feeds people with it. Now it's a little, it's so uncomfortable for me that you just like, you have these ox that were working and then you just kill them and feed people. But the overall imagery of it is that he had this imagery of the law and the, that, that Peter says the yoke that's crushing us. He breaks it up and he makes a fire with it. And with that fire, he uses other tools of that law to feed other people. It becomes a thing of service. Very similar when the Bible says that there's a time where there'll be no war and the only use of for swords would is to be bent into a plowshare. Like there's no use for military weapons except for farming. And so it has that feel to it in which he takes, you know, that yoke and he just uses it to serve people. And there is a, I think I'm so hung up on it because there's a deeper, uh, layer to it too, because uh, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And the last thing that Malachi says is that coming, you know, before the Lord's judgment comes, uh, God will send Elijah uh, down. And now, you know, as we know, Jesus was very misunderstood at his time, even uh, by his own followers. And they thought that some people thought he was coming in a much more violent overthrow type way. And they asked him, but Malachi said that Elijah was going to precede you. Like we didn't see that. And Jesus says that God did send Elijah in the form of John the Baptist, but nobody recognized him. And so if John the Baptist led the way for Jesus and Elijah led the way for Elisha, and then you have the imagery of that Jesus character breaking the yoke of the law and then turning it into service. That's great. I love that's something like that makes me believe the Bible more than other scriptures because I'm like the imagery that goes all the way back. How many probably thousands of years between Elisha and Jesus and that imagery works so well. And then how many years from Jesus to Peter, like to Peter saying that like, it's crazy and I love it. And um, so what, I'm going to do is we'll end it here with this last imagery. And that's um, the Wes Anderson movie. 
uh, the Darjeeling Limited. It's great. Go watch it. Um, you know what? Leave this talk while I'm talking. Go watch it. No, um, but it's really, it's really great. But there's a theme throughout it of these three brothers that are trying to connect after their dad's death, and they they all have their dad's luggage. They all took different um, suitcases and you know. Um, just different, all this different luggage and they're lugging it around. And, um, you know, sometimes they're missing trains because they're trying to lug it around and, and everything. And then they kind of have this awakening with each other. And towards the end of the movie, they're running for a train. And one of them says, dad's luggage is not going to make it. And so they all drop the, the luggage that's slowing them down and they run and they are able to get onto the train. And that is what... I look at with legalism uh, is it's these baggage baggages baggage that we're, we're pulling behind us that we're dragging and it's slowing us down and it's making us clumsy and we're tripping over it. Um, but in order to move forward and get to what we want, we have to rid ourselves of that luggage. We have to dump it so we could leave that legalism behind and really focus on the pure and simple message of grace and love and acceptance and boom we're done sorry guys i ran over a little bit um i'm hoping it made sense to everybody everybody i think we'll we'll end it here it doesn't seem like uh much is happening in the chat i just want to give people the opportunity i did not want to cut them off so thank you so much for tuning in and for sticking around and if you're listening to this later on or watching this later on thank you for watching and listening and um we will talk to you guys in the real world somehow so all right everyone take care and have a good day Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To make your 100% tax-deductible donation today, please visit revolutionchurch.com donate. You can also learn more by clicking the donate section on the website.